Hi, everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where we can spell Canadal with an A, an E, or a Y. Good afternoon, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nakam Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 2 p.m. as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nahum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, I'm joined by my handy-dandy partner, David. I thank David for coming in. We have a full show, so we will schmooze with David a little bit later. I also have my first guest on hold, and I do not want to make him wait too long. If you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. And as always, if you are a returning listener, Thanks for making us part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what listener Eitan Levine does. You can friend me on Facebook. Send me, send me an invite on LinkedIn. Shoot me an email, miriam at nachamsegel.com. I won't respond to you during the show, but I will respond to you afterwards. Also, please follow us on Twitter, nachamsegelnet, all one word. My thanks to everyone, by the way, who was involved with us at the parade show on Sunday, who emailed us during the parade show, who emailed me, gave me information I was looking for. It's a, it's a collaborative effort here at the network, and we appreciate our listeners' participation. My shout-out to Aton, by the way, has two intents. One is just to say hi, and the other one is to let everyone know that my column, Dear That's Life, now has a new home. I'm a contributor at the OU Life website. Um, I will be reposting my column on my blog and bringing that back to life. It's a little trias amazim here at the network. Um, I encourage you, though, to be ones of the ten, one of the tens of thousands who visit the OU Life website every day. It's ou.org slash life. My intent, as always, with each article is to make you smile. Please be in touch. I appreciate feedback on anything I write and anything I say on the air, and as always, I mean that. My thanks to Aton for being in touch and for offering this opportunity. I am part of a great team of writers at, OU, uh, at ou.org slash life. Make sure to check out what is going on there. Also, our heartfelt condolences to the family of Martin Rembo. Martin was just on with Naomi a couple of weeks ago. He is the brains behind the Kosher Barbecue Championship that's actually taking place this Sunday, and he um, very suddenly died of a heart attack the other day. And um, Naomi, I know, will be dedicating and will be discussing um, Martin's relationship um, and just who Martin was on her show tomorrow morning. But I also, because I had met Martin that day, and he was really very complimentary about what we were doing at the network and very warm, um, I just also wanted to express our condolences here from everyone at That's Life. Let's go to our favorite segment. What does the fortune cookie say? Let's go. Remember, everybody, we've been having a batch of great fortune cookies. I'm going to have to order some more Chinese food just because I've been opening these up on my own just for the heck of it. Nice. See, this is what I'm feeling today. The human spirit is stronger than anything that can happen to it. Well, that's a testament to everyone who's going on with the Kosher Barbecue Championship this Sunday. That was Martin's dream. And, uh, wow, that fortune cookie is for you, Martin. Let's take care of some business. Today's national holidays, folks. It's D-Day, not because it's 1944, but on June 6, 44, the U.S. invaded Normandy. And while the, there were major casualties that day, I think it was close to uh, 10,000 Allied troops were killed in the invasion of Normandy, but over 100,000 troops successfully took that beach and ultimately led to the soldiers' march across Europe to defeat Hitler. So June 6, 1944, we commemorate that day today. And also, by the way, for those of you who are New York Times crossword aficionados, that is an easy and often used clue. In addition, it's drive-in movie day. I have no idea where you can find one around here, but if you found one, let me know. Tomorrow is Donut Day. Tomorrow and Shabbos. We're holding two days for Donut Day, I promise. 
By the way, it's also Rosh Chodesh on Shabbos and Sunday. I have nothing to do with that, and that's purely coincidental, but eat a donut on me. Also, it's been National Headache Awareness Week. It goes from the two, the second to the eighth, and trust me when I tell you I've been taking that one to heart. I've been holding all eight days. Anyway, Crazy follows me everywhere, and it followed me the other day on the Long Island Railroad. And ironically enough, this story leads completely into my first guest. My uh, submission on the OU Life website for this week is all about Canadal. I've become absolutely obsessed with the fact that the Scripps National Spelling Bee uh, winning word was Canadal. Um, I was originally horrified when I heard um, different anchors on TV referring to it as Natal, as if the K was silent, but they were quickly corrected. I'm sure by people rolling their eyes in these studios uh, and off camera and also by the very, very vociferous group group of Jews and of lovers of Yiddish who have been for the last almost week trying to discern or make their voices heard as to what the proper, proper spelling is of Canadal. So my article this week for OU Life was all about the what the deeper meaning of having that word included in the Scripps National Spelling Bee means in the first place. And it's not just, in my opinion, about the fact that Seinfeld did an episode on marble rise and on chocolate babkas versus cinnamon babkas, etc. It's really about a, a deeper, deeper discussion and into how easily and how um, integrated Yiddish and Jewishisms, so to speak, have become as part of the natural culture, the American culture here in the United States. So it became part of a bigger discussion and something I had been discussing with Mayor Fertig for the last couple of days. And um, we joked about how on uh, a news report, uh, uh, a um, traffic report, I should say, a number of years ago, somebody referred to, the announcer referred to um, a backup on the LIE as Meshuggah. And I laughed in my car because, of course, I recognize where that word came from. But again, this person was using it just as their everyday vernacular. On the train the other day, there were two women sitting next to me, uh, so, sitting one across from the other. The woman sitting next to me, it seems, constantly loses things. And the woman sitting across from her, who was her friend, was wearing a cross around her neck. The woman sitting next to me says, well, it's only 8.15 in the morning, and I haven't lost anything today, but I'm sure I will. And the woman wearing the cross around her neck, sitting across from her, says, don't say that. You're going to give yourself a kinahara. And I did everything I could not to burst out in laughter that this woman wearing a cross was referring to this woman giving herself an ayanhara, but clearly not understanding exactly what was going on, but just, again, demonstrating how easily and seamlessly Yiddish and Jewishness has integrated itself into American life, and specifically for us here in New York life, which amazingly leads to my first guest. Dr. Jeffrey Gurok is the professor of Jewish history at YU, the former chair of the Academic Council of the American Jewish Historical Society. He has he served from 1982 to 2002 as associate editor, editor of the American Jewish History, which is the leading academic journal in that field. He is the author or editor of 14 books, and most recently, Jews in Gotham, New York Jews and Their Changing City, which was put out by NYU Press in 2012, was the third volume in what was named City of Promises, and it was awarded the 2012 National Jewish Book of the Year Award. We welcome Dr. Gorak to the program. Hello, Dr. Gorak. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. By the way, you know, June 6th has a real significance for me. Uh, uh, for my 60th birthday, my wife said, where do you want to go for your, for your birthday? I said, I want to go to Normandy. 
I want to walk the beaches of Normandy. And we went to Normandy. Wow. And we walked the 300 yards that our fellows crawled through to defeat the Nazis off Omaha Beach. And then we went to the cemetery. And uh, we put stones next to all the Jewish stars. You see our people with uh, other Americans who gave their lives on a very special day. And that's D-Day. The D-Day has no, the word D-Day has no real significance, just the day when the invasion took place of Normandy. And uh, in my, on my vacation, I read history books, not the, the stuff I work on. <laughs> and my wife always tries, we want to read a novel. I love reading about uh, military history. So D-Day is uh, a very special, a very special day. That yeah, is... Can, Canada's pretty interesting, I, I'll tell you. I, I think for me, the first thing is that the winner was not a Jew, but uh, an Asian-American, uh, an Indian-American. Right. And, he, and he got the word right, depending on how you, uh, uh, how you spell it. So it's, um, it, it's just another indication of how diverse uh, New York is, how diverse this country is, but particularly our city, Miriam. Right. Uh, I think one of the major uh, thrusts of my, of my book, uh, Jews in Gotham, is the fact that uh, Jews... Uh, share this city with uh, 200 or more different ethnic and racial groups. And, and many times we get along and sometimes we do not get along. And, and how we share the city and how, how special New York is, uh, a city which has been home to my family for 110, over 110 years. So wow. um, I have a great devotion to New, York, to New York City history, as I do to Jewish history, and to get a chance to integrate them in a book um, – which starts in 1920 and goes up to the Bloomberg administration was something that was uh, very special for me. And to win an award, you know, uh, you work 40 years to be an overnight sensation uh, is very exciting and, and very, very special. So it's nice to share some of these things with your audience. No, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. I guess one of my first questions is just on a purely basic level. Do you spell it with an A? Do you spell it with an I, an E, a Y? I mean, when you heard the whole story, my first reaction was, nah, it's an E. Well, I, I, you know, I would turn to the standard Yiddish dictionary uh, for the spelling, but uh, who eats only one canadol? Right. Canadlach, <laughs> so it's A-C-H, so that, 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 that solves the uh, etymological... Uh, that was uh, actually, that was a letter in the Times two days ago. That's correct. It continues to reverberate uh, in the city. Right. And your story about the, uh, the Christian woman with Kenai uh, and Hara says a lot about the fact that uh, Yiddish words have become part of... Uh, the English vocabulary, and I believe uh, 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 several Yiddish words could be found in a standard uh, American uh, heritage dictionary. I think Meshuggah uh, certainly makes its way into the uh, uh, to the dictionary. So, yes, the, the Jew. Look, at one point in the 1920s, uh, one out of every three New Yorkers was a Jew hmm. in the five boroughs, four boroughs plus uh, wow. plus Staten Island, which had a very very small Jewish community. So. Uh, Jews and Gentiles are bumping into one another. And in fact, you know, one of the things I point out in my book is that in the 1960s, we had a very strange circumstance. We had a WASP mayor of the city of New York, John Lindsay, okay, right. who, had no, who had no natural constituency because this is a very, very ethnic, ethnic city. And for Jews, I don't want to say this the wrong way, it's only when Jews moved out of New York that they met very different types of Christians. You wouldn't refer to fellow New Yorkers as Christians. You might refer to them as Italians and Irish, African-Americans, Latinos, and the like. So we are, 
we are a polyglot city that uh, uh, speaks to our diversity. And um, uh, it's only when Jews move away from New York that, you know what, they discover something. They discover not only that they're Jewish, but they're New Yorkers. Mm. Okay? And it, often differentiation is made between New Yorkers and uh, the rest of the country. Right. Uh, some of us don't really believe there's anything west of the uh, of uh, the Hudson <laughs> or west of the Alleghenies, but there's a very, very different America out there. The country so, doesn't end. Well, it's a it's a it's a it's a very it's a very different um, uh, tableau than what New York City is is all about. And um, you know, uh, we New Yorkers we uh, speak somewhat idiosyncratically. Right. We're we're quick in our movements. Um, it's a very special place to live, uh, being in New York City. I joked with somebody um, a couple of a uh, couple of weeks ago. I was down in Florida for the day, and I picked up a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And the person in front of me getting milk was really taking his time. And I, as the impatient Yorker, was growing more and more impatient, used to, you know, accustomed to getting my coffee in Penn Station, where no one has an extra thirty seconds to wait for you to pour a little bit extra milk in your coffee. And I and this person was really just, you know, strolling along. And I looked at the person next to me and I said, this guy would be shot if he was in Penn Station. There is a New Yorkerism, a a, a kind of just demeanor, gestalt, the whole thing that that moves a New Yorker no matter where they are. And I think also speaking to the whole canadal controversy, so to speak, mm-hmm. um there again, there is, there are these Yiddishisms, there are these Jewish references that have become part of the quilt, that have become part of the great American melting pot because we have traveled across the country and we are no longer just in New York and we, and there are Jewish communities of of varying size and of various degrees across the United States and it begs the question, which is what I discuss in my piece this week on OU Life, which is. Now that we have, quote-unquote, made it, we have integrated ourselves into society where the kid on, on America's Got Talent, like Edon Pinchot, wearing a yarmulke on TV, is not a big deal to anybody else but a Jew because we're excited to see a yarmulke, and we're all thrilled that the word canadal was the winning word in the National Spelling Bee. But does anyone else care? Well, a, a couple of things. First of all, your, your, your coffee experience, you said in Miami? Uh, yeah. Miami. So Miami... In many respects, it's an extension of New York. Right, so it's New York, York South. So, <laughs> so most probably you got away with it. Try that in Charleston, South Carolina, where my <laughs> wife and I lived uh, last year for, for a sabbatical uh, uh, tenure situation where everything is much slower, everything much calmer. And right. we always have to remind ourselves when we leave New York that we really have to behave because we are representing uh, representing New York City. But you know what? When Jews from New York move elsewhere in the country, it's almost like when our ancestors came to this country. You know, when East European Jews, for example, came to Lower East Side, the outside world looked at them as East European Jews, but they looked upon themselves as Jews from a particular gubernia, a particular shtetl, a particular mm. town, and they linked up with their, their fellow Jews. Well, there are pockets of New York life, and New Yorkers find each other wherever they go in the, uh, in the, in the United States. So that, that's part of the... Uh, that part of the picture. The other thing about acceptance of Jews, I, I've been remarking recently about the difference between how Americans reacted 
um, a few years ago when Joseph Liebman was, as an Orthodox right. Jew, was nominated for Vice President of the United States. Front page of the Times. I kept that front page. Very, very, very exciting. Very right. exciting. And he's an Orthodox Jew. Uh, devout Christians liked the fact that someone of faith was being nominated. It was in many, many markets, his orthodoxy. Well, 10, 12 years later, there's now an Orthodox Jew who's the Secretary of Treasury. Okay? Now, Jack Lou's orthodoxy is, was incidental to his story of his nominations. That also reflects the degree of integration and acceptance of, of Jews in the United States. Listen, uh, Miriam, I've got to tell you something. Uh, in the long sweep of Jewish history, this is a hyperbolic statement, but there's a lot of truth to it. We've never been in a situation where Jews have, be, have been more accepted and where anti-Semitism is at such a low ebb. If, if you can factor out, which I never would, the anti-Semitism that's uh, expressed towards Medinat Yisrael, towards Israel, okay? And if you factor that out, in terms of our social acceptance in America, it's unparalleled in, in Jewish history. It's unparalleled in American Jewish history. There's no place in the country where you can't go as a Jew and even as an observant Jew and be respected, okay? Which, which raises the question that the question, the big question for us as a community in the 21st century, and that is how do we survive as a community in a country where we are so widely accepted. Yeah, you can have it all, you can have it, almost have it all, right. and be an observant Jew, you know? Right. Uh, Senator Liebman's a good example, uh, Secretary Liu, and yet the, the, the challenges of survival are, are really robust because you're not confined to the, to the Jewish neighborhood. Look, l- let me say something else. One of the things I emphasize in my book is that until the Second World War, Jews lived in their own neighborhoods in New York City, Eastern Parkway, the iconic Grand Concourse, Ocean Parkway, places of that sort. Okay? Mm-hmm. There to be Jewish, there to be Jewish meant that every place you turned, you saw other Jews on the street, in the candy store, in the public school, at City College, if you're lucky enough to go to college, where 90%, 85%, 90% of the students were Jews. If women who went to Hunter College, similarly, everywhere you turned, it was Jewishness. Right. And you didn't necessarily have to go into a synagogue of any denomination to remain Jewish. So I, I, I found all sorts of memoir literature where people said, I never went to a synagogue. I didn't have to. My Jewishness mm. was rooted in the fact that the whole world was Jewish, even though statistically 30% of the people on the Grand Concourse weren't Jewish. We'll contrast this to the contemporary times where we are so well integrated. Right. Now the necessity of identifying Jewishly in a formal manner becomes increasingly, increasingly robust. So I guess that begs the next question, mm-hmm. which um, comes on the heels of what I uh, the um, op-ed in the Times yesterday. Yes, for those people who want to know, I still have a subscription to the Times. Um, called it, it was entitled "Jewish Identity Spelled in Yiddish." by Dara Horn, in which she reflects upon the multiple spellings of the word canadal and the controversy over the spelling canadal as being, as with a sense of sadness in that that identity, that that one true spelling represent, which could represent or represents the, the, the trueness or the, um, the preservation 
of Yiddish as a language because it's unknown and because everyone has different spellings. She that to her speaks to a kind of sadness that we have lost a we have lost a sense of our identity because we don't know how to spell this anymore. Look, one of the the great victims of Americanization for all groups was the frontal assault on immig- on immigrant languages. Although we often see these things in a Jewish term, uh, it can be said of other ethnic ethnic groups. And one of the great casualties. Uh, for most of for most of us, was the abandonment of Yiddish language. Mm. I'm I'm a Yiddish reader. Uh, I I went to day school, and we learned Hebrew. I had, when I went to college, I had to study Yiddish to know Yiddish, which was my grandpa- my grandparents' language, which right. I use as part of my professional my professional activity. Yiddish was was frontally attacked. Did you know they had a they had a tradition at the settlement houses on the Lower East Side, like in Henry Street. That if Italian kids spoke Italian or a Jewish kid spoke Yiddish, uh, they took the kid to the bathroom, they washed the kid's mouth out with soap. So I have a question for you, Miriam. Wow. What do they, what do, they do if an Italian kid spoke Yiddish? <laughs> well, it also speaks to the fact well, that there's there... an answer. There's oh, an there answer. is an answer. Okay. Yeah. He became mayor of the city of New York, Hero <laughs> LaGuardia, right. who, who in fact was of Italian ancestry, although his mother was Jewish, he was raised a, he was raised as a Christian. And he was a fluent Yiddish speaker. And in fact, let me teach a little history here. When he ran for Congress in 1920 in Harlem, I wrote about Harlem 35 years ago as my first book. He ran against a Jew named Henry Frank, who was of German-Jewish extraction. And Henry Frank suggest, uh, thought it would be a good campaign ploy to accuse um, uh, LaGuardia of being an anti-Semite. And LaGuardia was just... Uh, you know, he abhorred this allegation, but he also realized the political possibilities. So he challenged Frank to a to a Yiddish-only debate over his alleged anti-Semitism, and LaGuardia could speak Yiddish, and Frank couldn't, and it took care of that uh, that election. But language, language, the loss of Yiddish to a great extent, except for people who came after World War II, for whom Yiddish is still their tongue, is something that's uh, quite regrettable. It's one. It's one of the things. It's one of the things that we lost. And, you know, not only that, if you spoke an accented uh, English with Yiddishisms going back generations ago, you'd have great difficulty getting a job in certain industries and certain really? uh, professions. So look how far we've come. Now people are lionizing the fact and they're debating the proper spelling of Yiddish. Right. But uh, sadly, although there's been a bit of resurgence, I must say, among young people who become interested in Yiddish, that's something that, um, you know, the old historical adage, what grandparents know and children forget, grandchildren want to recover. Mm. And in some respects, this is not grandchildren, but great-grandchildren who, um, who become more interested in Yiddish. But it's got a long way to go in terms of its resurgence. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak, professor of Jewish history at YU and former chair of the Academic Council of the American Jewish Historical Society and author of Jews in Gotham, New York Jews and Their Changing City, joins us here at That Life discussing everything and anything about the importance of the word canadal. And, and, and by the way, just to go back a second, in terms of abandoning Yiddish, the, it's important to note that the state of Israel, as Israel is continuing to emerge, there was a movement to drop Yiddish because it was seen as a connection to the old country, whereas there was an embracing um, of Hebrew as the modern language. That's correct. That's correct. And and the same thing is true in this country. 
uh, in the 1930s as, as a step in terms of Jew, acceptance of Jews in America. This is a small item, but it, it, it resonated in many respects. The, the Board, of, Board of Education of the City of New York elevated Hebrew as a regent's language. In other words, if you went to Thomas Jefferson High School or Boys High School in Brooklyn or James Monroe in the Bronx, during the interwar period and into the post-war period, you could take Greek, Latin, Spanish, French, or Hebrew. And the reason Hebrew was approved because the sense was that we are a cultural pluralistic country and people have to have a sense of their own background, and therefore it's going to be Hebrew. But Yiddish didn't make the cut. So, in fact, when I went to college in the 60s at City College of New York, the Jewish studies program was under the rubric of classical languages and Hebrew. Wow. Which, is a, which was a follow-up to that. So, yes, uh, uh, Zionism rode the crest of cultural pluralism, whereas Yiddish was both in uh, Eretz Israel and also in, uh, in America identified with our East European heritage, which was robust and wonderful, but seen by Zionists as being passive, whereas Hebrew represents uh, the activism of, uh, of modernity. So, yes, that, that's true. But I, my, my understanding is that whereas and it, during its founding, you couldn't study Hebrew, a uh, Yiddish, excuse me, at Hebrew University, today you can. So really? there is, um, you know, a, a recollection that this is part of our, so much part of our heritage, our lost heritage, uh, that was lost, you know, tragically during the Shoah. It didn't occur to me until you mentioned it just a minute ago how many of my friends and my contemporaries took Yiddish as a language in college and in the early 90s. And even my brother-in-law, who was in school a little bit later than that in the late 90s, um, who went to YU, and friends of mine who were at Barnard and Columbia all took, or many of them, took Yiddish as a foreign language because they did feel that 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 loss and that that um, drive that need to connect to their grandparents and to a world that was being lost. It just speaks also to an interview I did last week with Dr. Eric, Eric Goldman, also from YU, about um, American Jewish life through cinema and how the story of the Holocaust skipped a generation and that how survivors. Were, became more comfortable telling their grandchildren their stories versus their children. Right. But we're, we're now aware as historians, one of my colleagues at NYU, Hashi Dina, did a very, very important book dealing with uh, recollections of memorializing the Holocaust pre-1967. One of the uh, fallacies she points out was the idea that Jews, Jews didn't talk about the Shoah from 1945 until 1967, until the miracle of the Six-Day War, and as part of it, never again, we're never going to see the, our people destroyed again. There was a resurgence of interest in studying the Shoah. And she has pointed out, and very convincingly, that um, uh, American Jews uh, and Israeli Jews were aware and were telling the stories, even, even in the late 40s and early 50s, certainly post-1967, you know, uh, uh, the study of the Shoah has become a staple of um, Jewish studies programs um, all over the country, um, including at Yeshiva. Although for us, interestingly, um, the study of the Shoah is not uh, a basic building block of our identity. We have a far more, far stronger, more robust identity. 
uh, the study of the Shoah is contextualized within the idea of this is the heritage that we that our ancestors had lost or brought with them, you know, happily to the uh, to the United States. How, how many of our grandparents would say that if not for the fact that um, their parents um, left Eastern Europe at a particular point in time, let's say before World War One, uh, we would have not be be around to tell these stories. So uh, it's a big burden, and it's something that uh, has to be uh, thought of and. One other thought on this subject, um, in our synagogue, and I'm sure this is true of many synagogues, uh, whenever we have Yiskor, we say a special Yiskor for the Kedoshim who died during the Shoah. Right. And a few years, and we always have a survivor open the ark. Mm. Okay? A few mm-hmm. years ago, on Yom Kippur, we looked around the shul, and at that particular point, there wasn't a single survivor in the shul. Wow. So we had to have the child of a survivor, which says something about the importance of of remembering the Holocaust post the generation that can tell the stories. It's up to us and our children to uh, keep these stories alive. That's um, that's really that's a really important message. You know, I've been in I've been in shuls where we there hasn't been a Kohen to either get reshown or Mm -hmm. or to or to Duchen. But I, I can't say I've ever been in a situation where there was not a survivor in our midst. And I, I definitely think that that is a, a very important lesson. But I think, Dr. Gorak, that I, I may be making a huge assumption that um, upon which my entire piece or my entire theory is predicated in that the word Canadal being included actually is a big deal at all. Am I, am I right or am I wrong? Are you saying it is a big deal? I I think it's a big deal, but not be, not for the same reason that everyone else might think it's a big deal. I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think the spelling so much is a big deal, but I think that it's mere presence in the spelling bee and highlighted and, you know, even to the nth degree as it being the winning word reflects just how far we have become integrated. And I'm going to use the word assimilated, but I don't mean with the negative connotation. I just mean as part of the fabric of this country by the fact that the word canadal is there in, in the first place. And to some extent that the word canadal, that are, so many people are laying claim to the spelling that it's, it's, it's brought this entire conversation to a new level, which for me, I don't, I don't have the answer, nor do I want to even think I have the answer, but it just like, it smacked me in the face to say, holy cow, you know, we have, we have Seinfeld and we have Larry David and we have Woody Allen, we have Jack Lew and we have Joe Lieberman, we have Chuck Schumer, we have Shelley Silver, we have all of these very prominent Jews in different in different places. And we have people eating bagels across the country and and making whitefish jokes or whatever it is. But but now this is like this is this is national primetime television where a kid a, a child, a thirteen year old of Indian descent from Queens knew how to probably spell the word canadal, not because he'd been living around thousands of Jews, but because a couple of years ago he got he got out on the spelling bee on a word of also Germanic descent. Of Germanic descent, right. Correct. Right. And as a result, he did more homework. So it's like, it's, it's like a two-pronged message. On the one hand, I'm looking at it saying, my God, how far integrated are we that the word canadal is the winning word in the Scripps National Spelling Bee? On the other hand, you can say, it's not like this kid walks into a Jewish deli every single day. He's just been doing his homework. Yeah, well, he, obviously this kid did his homework. Look, look again, uh, as I emphasized before, we're, we're living in a time of great acceptance, and 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 uh, very often there are Jews in positions of power, influence, uh, 
that people don't even recognize that, that they're Jewish, which is another point about, about our degree of assimilation. And I think you're right. The word assimilation always has the uh, uh, negative connotation. Uh, there's a, an acculturation continuum right. that all of us are on as, uh, as American Jews in terms of to what extent we embrace America, to what extent we will hold on to our, to our tradition. I just want to make, tell you one other quick story about this, um, uh, this uh, no survivors speaking, okay? So mm-hmm. last, last November, uh, I, was, I gave a lecture at um, University of Laverne in California. And no, for your listeners, there's no brother school called University of Shirley. <laughs> University of Laverne, okay? Yeah, unfortunately, David, my engineer, is looking at me going, I don't even understand that reference, but I do. I do. Well, I do. It was a popular TV show about a generation ago, David. Right. Okay. Sorry, poor David. Which dates me, <laughs> that's for sure. I got it. I got the reference. In I'm any with event, you. The school is 60% Latino. And they had a Kristallnacht commemoration. Wow. Why? Because the president of the university, Devorah, not Deborah Lieberman, not related to Joseph <laughs> Lieberman, decided that in the spirit of cultural pluralism that, uh, and diversity, that their community should learn about Jewish culture as well. So I was fortunate enough to be invited to speak about, uh, about Kristallnacht. And my, and my paper and my talk was about what American, what the rank and file, the average Jewish woman and man in the street of New York is doing during World War II. Mm. You might talk about some other time for a, for a, for a longer discussion. Sure. Anyway, when it was all, and it was a very nice crowd, a very nice crowd of people, not all Jews, okay, which was very gratifying. Right. Afterwards, I spoke to some people. My opening remark about, about Kristallnacht and about, about the fact that in my synagogue there were no survivors to open the Holy Ark my 45-minute talk, about, historical talk, didn't make that much of an impact. But the image of the fact that you don't have someone to memorialize personally that experience was something that people were very taken with, and it was it was very shocking, very shocking to me, gratifying in some respects. But it's, it says a lot about uh, the need to remember these things and the need to uh, talk about these things in uh, in the terms that we do today. Wow. Well, Dr. Jeffrey Gork of Yeshiva University, I. I really can't thank you enough for giving us your time today. Those people who have not yet picked up Jews in Gotham, New York Jews and their changing city, is put out by NYU Press. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. Am I right? Yes, it is. Sure. Absolutely. And, again, it is the 2012 National Jewish Book of the Year, and I, I highly recommend it. I actually have it, Dr. Gorak. I'm not just saying that. I have it. Well, soon to be a major motion picture, God, God willing, but no, I'm just kidding. Oh, I was about to uh, say, really? That's so cool. That would be cool. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you, thank you very much. I hope you'll come back again. We'll discuss. Uh, I'm sure Bobka is going to uh, come into our conversation the next time. Terrific. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am Miriam L. Wallach, joined by my next guest, Jessica Steinberg, is the culture and lifestyle editor at timesofisrael.com. She's been living and working in Jerusalem for the last 16 years. She's covered Israel's business and economic scene for Bloomberg, the uh, Dow Jones Newswires, the Jerusalem Post, the Forward, and she's been writing about life in Israel and fashion and culture and parenting for the Times, the International Herald Tribune, Women's Wear Daily, Tablet Magazine, JTA Hadassah, and Parents.com, and she joins us now from Yerushalayim, Erev Tov. How are you? Thank Erev God. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, you know, the, uh, the most recent piece, by the way, uh, that I want to discuss that you have on Times of Israel called Local writers love nothing more than spinning a story. 
um, is definitely something I want to get to. But if you have a second and you can comment on the Soda Stream news from this morning, that uh, yeah. <laughs> Soda Stream, by the way, for those people who don't get the Reuters updates like uh, I do, and um, why you don't is beyond me, but that's okay. SodaStream is seems to be in talks with PepsiCo right now to be bought out by for two billion dollars. And SodaStream, for many, for those of you who don't know, is um, an uh, an everyday home appliance that you can get in Bed Bath and Beyond or in various different places where you take tap water and you carbonate it yourself using a canister that fits in the back of the machine and was developed in Israel by from Jews that is now at the process of being bought out by PepsiCo for two billion dollars pretty unbelievable <laughs> as i sit here drinking my soda stream <laughs> seltzer it's in fact my kids will only pretty much only drink seltzer which we call it seltzer in our house and it's funny because we uh, refer we refer to it as soda so that when my kids want a sprite i'm like there's already soda on the table um but the uh, the the whole soda stream um a phenomenon is not just about the uh, the product itself, which is great that people absolutely love, but also it's just another it's another example of Israel as startup nation. It's another example of Israeli ingenuity at its best. Yeah, I'm I'm not. It, it's it's certainly true, and you know you've been we've been seeing stream um, stream. Uh, and so to speak, in, in Israeli kitchens for a long time. You know, they had an ad during the Super Bowl this year. I don't know if you know that. I did not um, know that. They did. It was like basically like, a, I'm going to get this wrong probably, and everyone should look it up on YouTube for themselves. But I believe, I believe it was a Coca-Cola and Pepsi trucks going head-to-head, you know, and crashing, so to speak, you know, obviously, because they're not needed anymore. Right. You know, only SodaStream is necessary in life. I believe they are a South African family who started Soda Club, a South African family who made Aliyah and started the company here. Um, Got it. And they've been around a long, long time, really a long time. Israelis are crazy for soda water. And um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I was a business writer for many years. I don't know the exact background of when they started entering the American market. But clearly, it's working. Right. Because $2 billion is a lot of money. Yeah, as somebody said to me, $2 billion is a lot of zeros. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, it is. It <laughs> it's, um, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a producer at CNBC, and he told me that SodaStream, for the last, I think, two years, has been the most watched and talked about stock at CNBC. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that there's That's a lot of, there's a lot of incredible buzz about it. And so it's just, I mean, this is the second story that I've posted on Facebook this week um, representing, uh, you know, is- Israeli or Jewish, if you want to put it that way, ingenuity. The um, Another one being uh, a piece that was put up in the New York Times on Tuesday, which is the science, which is, the, you know, the, the day the Science Times comes out. For, right. those, for those people listening who still can't believe I still have my New York Times subscription, that um, that Israeli inventors have figured out a way to make people who are blind see. Ah, uh, yes, that was a big story. Right. 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 There's um, it, it just it doesn't it doesn't cease to amaze me. But anyway, let's talk about the piece that you have in the Times of Israel called "Local Writers Love Nothing More Than Spinning a Story," in which you highlight four different, very very well known adult fiction writers, including David Grossman, including Meir Shalev, 
who also write children's books. Right, right, and have been for years. That's what's really fascinating about it. What I th- yes, it was David Grossman who pointed out to me um, that actually he feels that they are all, and you know, speaking for himself, continuing on in the Israeli tradition of writers who, who Israeli writers of adult fiction always wrote children's books because essentially because Hebrew is, is such a, a really relatively new language, there were no children's books in Hebrew. So the writers took it upon themselves to translate and to write their own children's books because otherwise there were no children's books in Hebrew, and that's really where the whole tradition got started. But, of course, there's also this very parental element to it, as anyone who has kids and has sat down and read that bedtime story or, you know, or a book at any other time of day, and that you read these books, and, you know, some of them are just so, some children's books are so great. They just get it. Right. You know, they're the kind of book that the kid loves and the adult loves, and you have to love it because you're going to read it over and over and over again. Right. Um, and that's, of course, the challenge. And that, of course, also makes it a classic. You know, when you think about um, when you think about certain children's books that you can read over and over again, whether it's anything by Dr. Seuss, though I have my favorites, and you think of uh, Good Night Moon or Madeline. Like, these are books that have stood the test of time. But what I th- found very interesting, um, and I don't remember which author was the one who said it, was that yeah. kids are a tough, they're tough critics. They're not going to wait another two, three pages to see if they like it. You either have them at hello or you don't. And what I don't think that people necessarily appreciate is that you, not everybody can write a children's book. And just because you can write adult fiction doesn't mean you have what it takes to write a children's book. No, and it's true that, you know, uh, um, people listening to this might say, okay, so what have these guys written and what, have it, what, what, what books are in English if you're more interested in the English than the Hebrew? And is it going to be readable? And, of course, like anything, it's, it's personal taste um, is, is what really, you know, determines what you're going to read and what you're not going to read. I found, for instance, for myself, that Mayor Shalev's books, uh, kids' books, are I, they're they're adorable. They're lovely. They're there's a whole series about Kramer the cat, right? And who he hangs out with in the backyard. And my kids love them because it, he brings in all these different, you know, backyard creatures. Really, none of them are necessarily wild creatures from the jungle. And it's very readable. And he has all these great illustrations that, of course, are not his, but his illustrating partner, um, who puts in little things that only the adults might get. Mm. Um, and, you know, chuckle at while they're reading the book to their kids. Right. David Grossman, on the other hand, he has a much more surreal take on childhood. Um, not necessarily always my cup of tea, but, you know, some books I've liked for kids more than others. And what's nice that we have over here is um, it's called Sifriat Pajama, Pajama Library. Um, it's funded by a foundation, and kids all across Israel take home books, literally. They're, they're given a book um, every month or so, I believe, it, it turns out, literally, to take home for their home library. But it, they've also created now these, these libraries, the Sifriya Pajama, in every gun, in every kindergarten. And you are, the kids obviously have this rotating library within their preschool um, that allows them to take home all these different books. And there's 
quite an assortment now, obviously, wow. of Hebrew children's literature. Right, original Hebrew children's literature, not just original, right. original, not just something so that there's a lot that's translated. Right. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 it's fine. There's a lot that's translated. Of course, I'm blanking right now. Um, what's it called? The, that creature with the orange eyes and the purple prickles on the back. Have you guys been reading that in the states? It's this Julia Donaldson. No, I mean we, uh, we we haven't at the Wallach household, but that doesn't mean that uh, other people haven't. Yeah, so um, uh, I'm looking it up right now as I speak to you. She writes um, uh, the Gruffalo book, okay. the Gruffalo series, which is very popular, I guess, in England and very popular here in Israel, so much so that they have all been translated into Hebrew. Wow. Um, and, you know, some of it works and some of it doesn't. Right. But uh, like anything else, really. Right. But it's it's the touches that they have all brought to their literature as fathers, as now grandfathers, that really make the difference, I find. And they were mostly men. I, you know, it's funny. I Just to comment on that, that was something I immediately noticed, is that when I was looking at the, the names of the authors that you that were, that were being highlighted in this piece, I was, I don't want to say a little bit stunned, because I think that's overstating it, but um, it, it surprised me a little bit that the 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 reference to um to a woman really came at the end in terms of the literary agent who's quoted in the piece, but the four authors who are highlighted were all men. Now yeah, I mean there are there are certainly famous female authors in, in Hebrew. Um uh, uh I, I mean like there's 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 and of course I'm not thinking of their names right now and I'm going to <laughs> think of it in just a second. But um it is true, and I did talk about that with them and with uh, with Deborah Harris, the literary agent who I quote at the end. It, it, it does seem to be true that many of the writers are men. And one of the writers said to me, uh, Dove Elbaum, he conjectured that it's because in Israel, uh, which is a very traditional society still in many ways, women work, and, but they often they often finish work at, three o'clock or two o'clock in time to pick up the kids, you know, and right. shuttle them all around to after school activities. Right. And the fathers by and large are the ones coming home at six or seven in time to bathe kids, read those stories and put them to bed at the point where the mother is just, you know, kind of falling apart. <laughs> and, um, and they all said that to me. They all said that, and that's been their experience. And so it's that funny kind of juxtaposition. While Israeli women definitely work and out of the house, they are by and large the ones that you see in the parks in the afternoon and picking up the kids and in the minivan. Hmm. Um, and I know for myself, I am usually, oh, gosh, the last thing I want to do is sit down and read a book to my kids right. at, you know, 730 at night, even though that is such a special time. Of course. Of course. So if, even if you're a female writer, if you're the one picking up your kid at 3 o'clock, your head is also fried by the time you get to, you know, to the bedtime story. Right. And it was funny because at the, um, the, the photograph that accompanies the picture that uh, – sorry, the, the photograph that comes right before your mention of Deborah Harris, it says, uh, it appears to be mostly male authors who dominate children's books in Hebrew, but women writers are extremely successful. In the young adult niche, says – said literary agent Deborah Harris. And when I read that, it only it only reminded me that Joyce Carol Oates, 
who wrote mm. we, who we who wrote we are we were the Mulvaneys, which was right. a, a tome of literature to call it nothing else that was 800 pages long about I don't know what, and I read the entire thing and wanted to know why I was getting into such minutia. I didn't I didn't it didn't grab me like it grabbed the rest of the world. So when I heard that she wrote a young adult novel, I was very, very intrigued to see if she could make it there in my mind. Clearly in the rest of the world, she had made it with Mulvaney's. But I wanted to see if she grabbed me with the young adult literature and what she wrote for for teens and for middle schoolers was phenomenal. So I be- Interesting. Yeah, so I began to I began to ignore her adult <laughs> fiction and her adult novels and just focus on the young adult literature that she was writing for because that to me like that should have been in my opinion her niche. But when you're looking at and it it also said to me it takes a certain amount of guts to leave your genre, to leave your your um comfort zone and go into something completely different. So when you look at these four male of these four successful authors who are men who are who are writing incredible thrillers and and adult fiction etc for them to go into the uncharted territories of children's literature and be successful takes a tremendous amount of guts i agree with you and i think it's interesting what you say about joyce carol oates um i think that you sort of were, were to sort of take it a little bit further i would say like this it's never easy to write and it's never easy to write fiction whether it's for children or adults or young adults i would say that um Writing a children's book, though, is in some ways, in some ways it's easier than writing a novel because it's short. When you're a writer and you have to sort of drag out these concepts and thoughts and conversations and dialogue, a kid book, every word counts. So that is key. And we all know we've all read really terrible children's books. (laughs) Yeah. And so it is impressive when you think how how you can have a wonderful story encapsulated in, I don't know, 500 words, 300 words. Right. That's pretty amazing. Right. On the other hand, like Mayor Shalev, he writes books as a break from his novels. Mm. And I would say, yeah, and then to take it to the to the young adult fiction and to the women writers, it's not surprising to me really, and, and I'm not as familiar with the young adult writers, but I'm definitely intrigued enough to start looking into it. <laughs> it's not surprising to me that that women would be better at writing novels for young adults. Right. Young adults are tough. Right. They're, I hear that. They're tweens, they're teens. It's a tough time of life, and you have to really get them if you're going to make it work. Right. Um, and I think it might be harder for that male, that typical male father figure to be able to be that in tune with them in order to write a book that would appeal to them. Interesting. Very, very interesting take on it. We have just a few more minutes, um, unfortunately, to speak with Jessica Steinberg, who comes to us from Jerusalem. She is um, a contributor at Times of Israel, which, by the way, if you are not familiar with, you should be familiar with. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal um, news site with all great information coming out of Israel. Jessica, let me just ask you something and entertain me sure. for a second because I've been completely obsessed with the word canadal and the entire... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Tell, just tell me something. You know, not everything translates across the pond. Did it? Did it make any? Did it make any eyebrows? Raise any eyebrows in Israel? We certainly wrote about it, but um, you know, but it, it, we don't. We don't use the term "canadal" isn't isn't used here. Right. Right. 
it's, um, I mean, it's, I mean, obviously, canadal natal, and I'm sure you, if you were to ask people, they would know what a canadal is. Right. But um, you, if you are the kind of person who buys a box of ready-made matzo mix, not that I'm. No, no, no. We don't know people. That, we don't know people all. like that, right? Of course. Um, it says, you know, it says in he, it says in English, matzo ball and kadure matza, uh, kadure um, kemach matza. Uh huh. Uh, you know, Massamel. Right. So it's funny. I mean, it, you did see it in all the local newspapers, although it didn't in the English language newspapers. Uh, I am not positive, but I do not believe it made much of a splash in the Hebrew language uh, newspapers because, you know, it's that Yiddish thing. It's not as Yiddish is not as much of a of a given in these parts. Wow. Even though, you know, there are certainly those who speak it. Right. No, I mean, that's what we, you know, I, I, uh, just having Dr. Gurak on at the beginning of this program when we discussed Canadal, and I wrote about it this week um, for OU Life. It's just to me an incredible fascination. But you're right, it, you know, because because Yiddish today is more, and I'm going to use this word very loosely, commonly used in the United States versus in Israel. It's um, it's part of our vernacular here, and um, and not so much in Israel. I just. Uh, very. It is here. It is here. It is here. I mean, it is. Um, you do hear certain Yiddishisms, uh, you know, that, that always sort of make me laugh. And you know, there's even Yiddish theater. There's Yiddish groups. Right. There are definitely people who consider Yiddish to be something that they don't want to be forgotten just because we're living in the land of the Hebrew language. Right. Um, and yeah, I think people are charmed by it. It's, it's you know, canadal that that should be the winning word. I in know. <laughs> You know, the spelling bee, it's hilarious. It is. It is. And by the way, the word is charmed. I haven't been able to put my finger on it for the last week, but you're right. The word is charmed. Anyway, Jessica Steinberg from timesofisrael.com, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, I hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Miriam L. Wallach. Thank you for joining me. As always, thank you for making us part of your day. Let's go through the lineup. Make sure you know what not to miss. Randy Picks up right where I left off with something to talk about right after this program. After that, we have an encore of Teen Spirit with Leo Razamik. And then Ellie Hagler and the Jewish Reaction with an update on the efforts of the OU and the Chabad working together in Oklahoma. The uh, spin class with Michael Fragan. you got to listen to this. He's got a whole angle on the um, on the, the Chris Christie reaction to the open seat provided, unfortunately, by the passing of Senator Lautenberg, who was a great friend of Israel, though if you were from New Jersey, you didn't necessarily love him, but if you're a Jew, you had to appreciate his support of the state of Israel. After that, Thursday Night Extravaganza, hosted tonight by Avrami, after which Mayor Fertig will be here hosting the stunt show, followed by Book of Life with Charlie Harari, and then an encore of Teen Spirit and Charlie, Charlie Burnout, as always, wraps up our lineup. Tune in all day. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 as he hosts JM in the AM, 91.1, and 91.9 FM, followed by Table for Two with Naomi Nachman. Don't miss Saturday Night Seagull with Avrami live here at 10 p.m. only on the stream. And, of course, Sunday morning, 7 to 9, it's JM Sunday with Matis. So it is a great way to start your week. This show will be rebroadcast Sunday at 1 p.m. on NachumSiegel.com. My thanks to Duke, my thanks to Yael Lassen, my thanks to Avrami, my thanks again to everyone who was involved in the parade show, Mark Zamek, ZK, 
Duke, who was sitting next to me, Nahum, of course, Fertig, of course, Morty Freed, who came in at the end. We really appreciate everyone's participation. It was four hours of fun and excitement. And, of course, the Camels and Edan. We wouldn't want to forget either one of those. I leave you today with W. Gabe's Sos Assis. It is a favorite here at That's Life, and it is something else I've become obsessed with. Looking forward to speaking to you guys next week. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. Me, it's a dog, oh, yeah, oh,